This is Speaking of Shakespeare, and I'm Thomas Dabbs. What follows is a talk that I had recently with Ben Crystal. Ben is an actor, he's also a producer and a writer, and he's very well known for the work that he's done with his father, David Crystal, on Original Pronunciation, or OP. Now, Original Pronunciation is a recreation of how Shakespearean actors actually pronounce the words in Shakespearean text. And we'll talk more about that and some other work that Ben is doing, uh, in particular work on original performance and also some work that he's having to do as he and many other performing artists have to adjust to a pandemic. This program is brought to you and is sponsored by the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, also called Kakenhi. And this organization, thankfully, includes support for research in the humanities. So let's get on with it. Good morning, Ben. How are you? I haven't seen you in a while. I'm, I'm okay. Thank you, Tom. It's great to see you too. Yeah, it's, uh, I wish I were there with you. I wish you were here with me too, and I wish I were there with you. I'm in Hollyhead in North Wales, the, northwest tip of North Wales. The very northwest tip of North Wales, and I know that because I drove there through the Welsh rain to take you, the ferry. The Welsh rain is here right now. I can see it in front of me. Yeah. Well, the, the Welsh rain, that's kind of hard to say. The Welsh rain uh, falls mainly in Wales, but uh, we, were, we were taking the ferry. My wife and I were taking the ferry, and we had the joy of staying overnight with the Crystal family, and you cooked, you cooked dinner, and you cooked salmon, and it was good. Oh, well, that's good to hear. You know, one of the things that's one of the very few good things that's come out of the last six months of lockdown is uh, I have developed a hundred different ways of cooking salmon. I've, I think I've improved. So uh, I hope you'll come back. Well, I will. And I think next time I do this, I'm not going to try to drive up. I picked up my wife in Heathrow. She was coming in from Spain. I was already in the UK and I picked her up at Heathrow and drove through um, Snowdon so Snowdonia. Snowdonian mm -hmm. uh, no. forest, and it was raining, and it was during tourist season, and I was trying to get to your place in some sort of respectable time, and so I was really worried about clipping off a few innocent tourists as I uh, sped through, but I, I managed to get through without uh, breaking any laws. Uh, I come Welsh folklore here. Everyone's yeah. <laughs> uh, the whirlwind of Tom Dabbs. Well, it's sort of an initiation. I've, I've been to Wales several times, so I had a friend who was in, uh, he was for a short period of time, a and b owner in Tenby in Pembrokeshire, mm -hmm. south of you, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, in a beautiful area. Nice part of the world. Yeah, but I will say this, that we were on our way to Ireland. We visited Ireland, and it was wonderful there. But what we remember is Wales. What we, we, oh, drove, well, we, uh, we, did, we, we went back on the north side uh, towards and ended up in Chester in England on the north oh, yeah. side toward Liverpool instead of going back through the National Park. And it was it was stunningly beautiful. It's beautiful. How's uh, how's Tokyo doing? How's uh, Ayoma doing? Uh, we're doing fine. Uh, I, you see, I'm in my office, so we we can come to school and work in school. 
but we're teaching everything online. It's all online. Wow. And I should say this to kind of time mark, uh, what I, I want to do in these talks is not talk too much about things that will not matter a year from now. So mm -hmm. if I've read something in the paper that made me angry this morning, I probably won't talk about that. But this will matter a year from now. You know, this, this, uh, this fact that we are in a pandemic will matter and we might still be in it. A year well, from absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously keeping an eye on all of the news from Japan because the country is so close to my heart. And uh, I remember reading a month or so ago some officials saying, no matter what happens, the Olympics are going to happen next year. We're okay. We're okay. All right. Now I think I'm saying this. I don't want to say anything. I don't. Uh, I don't know exactly. I'm not a lawyer. But I think that basically, if you feel very, if you uh, want to get tested in Japan, you go to the hospital, and if you test pos positive, they, uh, you are entered into the hospital. You are admitted into the hospital. Uh -huh. So that kind of discourages uh, people unless they are feeling very ill. So our numbers are very low. Now, I think that's the case, and there's not widespread testing, but on the uh, other side is there's not death. You, you can't really cover up death. Right? You know, the, it's sort of hard. People, you know, you're left yeah. with a, a body. Uh, we'll talk about bodies later when we get on to Shakespeare. But uh, uh, there, there's very little of that here, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, if you're one of them, it isn't fortunate, but it's, it's far worse in the States. And I've, I've noticed numbers jumping in France and uh, Spain. Yeah. Uh, and also in the UK. Uh, yeah, we're, we're just getting into our second wave. It's, uh, it's interesting to, I don't know how you're finding it, but to squeeze all of teaching and learning through, through this medium, is, uh, it's a, a challenge, eh? It, you bet. You bet. I am supposed to be a bit of an ex, not an expert necessarily, but I'm in what's called digital humanities. I've talked with you about it. You've done work in that area with the uh, Paul's Cross Project out of um, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. University of uh, what, North Carolina State University and John Wall's project. Very interesting work. And I've done a lot of work in digital humanities, but I've had a learning curve that's just as steep as one of those tall Welsh mountains, you know, uh, and uh, particularly with this type of stuff, with video broadcasting, uh, I, I've had to learn quite a lot about broadcasting and i think you have too do you you you've done broadcasting before but it's more set up right when you if you go into a studio it's not from home type of stuff right absolutely um you know normally my day today would have been getting up much earlier than i did and traveling four hours down to london and going to a recording studio and then getting a very quick taxi to another recording studio for the filming that I'm going to be doing later today. And um, I'm at home. And there we've got different sorts of studios set up in the different parts of the house, depending on whether we're doing voice work or visual work. And, um, and I, I think, you know, no matter the preparation that I might do in leading something, it never... I mean, this is also true... I think in real life when you get to encounter the students, but perhaps it's easier to perceive in the digital world that a lot of folk just aren't 
capable and ready for this level and this amount of digital interaction of their day. I, I mean, you know, I think we've got it tough. I think it's even harder for students to that don't get that social side of things, that don't get the sociolinguistic side of things. And, and also perhaps certainly I've heard in the States and, and some of it here too, and I imagine it's the same in Japan, they're not getting that break from social to work. They're in the same small space all day from where they wake up to when they go to sleep again. And yeah, my, my, my heart is with the learners rather than the teachers, I'm afraid. And, and I say that speaking as one. I feel sorry yeah. for them. I really do. What a, yeah. what a very difficult time to be, a, 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 to, to be wanting to blossom into the world and, and to reach out and learn and, and gain wisdom when you, and, and to have such restriction. It, yeah. it is it is really something and i i feel for the learners and i also feel much more you know to, to speak of positive things which i try to do as much as as i can because there's plenty of negative out there but uh i, I feel for for the first time in years like a learner like a real learner and we have studied we you know we were we were taught when we were learning how to teach when i was in graduate school we were basically taught to decenter ourselves and to, you know, become empathetic to, you know, student needs. And this has really awakened something in me because I, I'm learning along with them and yeah. stumbling along with them. Uh, and, you know, we're on our second semester of this now. Oh. So, uh, and I think in the UK, I spoke with uh, Sarah Olive uh, last week or the week before last. And they're just starting up, oh. and uh, and in the UK because it, you missed the you kind of miss having to go online uh, at, in the spring. But we were we of course start. You know how the Japanese semester system works. All right. So in your case, though, you're saying when whereas you would normally just hop in your car, drive down to London, and the studio would be set, and you would do your thing in the studio. Now you're having to make your studio at home. I see you have, you know, kind of lights and, and mm -hmm. doing that sort of thing. And I've noticed on, you've done a YouTube thing. I don't know if this was pre-pandemic or not, but I believe the um, guest photographer was your father, uh, <laughs> David, and you were going through and doing scansion on the, I believe it was to be or not to be. Yeah, you, were, you were analyzing, and I think it was in your yard, your, mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, backyard, and it's beautiful back there. And you, and it was a beautiful day, and you had uh, the papers, and I, I really enjoyed that, and I showed that oh, to my students or part, parts of it. Uh, yeah, it to, was. Um, it was very much so. That was April 2020. Uh, so about a month to six weeks into lockdown over here, and uh i was trying to send as much positive energy out into the world really and you know we were in a very peaceful part of the world here and the virus hadn't really hit us but of course we were on lockdown and um uh you know work had stopped prospects of work were stopped people weren't really and i don't think still are fully on board with how much the theater industry is and indeed the creative arts and the music industry and everything else is is, is struggling on and being torn apart really and um i offered some online coaching for free just anyone that wanted to spend an hour with me working a speech whether they're a student or a teacher or an actor and um i had 
the scratch of an idea in my head about breaking open some of the tools that I use as I'm touring around, like I would normally be right now, probably in Japan, actually. And in April, I probably would have been, in fact, I was due to be in America mm. uh, teaching these sorts of things. And, um, you know, we had an abundance of time and resources at our disposal and wanted to, as I say, send some, some goodness out there. So uh, we made those three films and um, I made three more as well, actually, in the summer. Uh, one of which has a pretty big COVID beard, uh, but uh, that's gone now. <laughs> I, I think I saw that, and I, that was a beard. That was a real beard. That was not a, a prop. The, the films haven't been released yet, but I, there was a, a, a photo of me or something. Was well, I was looking at Titus. Do you have a beard in Titus, the, the Titus thing that you sent? Oh, uh, I did um, Timon. Timon, yes. We're so doing Timon of Athens. I think you... I think you had a beard in that production. Uh, right? No, I didn't actually, but I, the, okay. the week before I did. But you know, there was a lot of Titus in Timon, which was a nice surprise. Yes. Counter Timon of Athens before we did that play. Uh, yes. The, um, the online project, the show must go online, where they've been doing weekly readings of Shakespeare uh, with actors from all around the world uh, gifting a, a Shakespeare reading every week. And it's been getting more and more adventurous. They've been going nonstop since since March, they're due to finish in November. They'll have done a play every week yeah. for seven or eight months. All of Shakespeare's works in chronological order. Yeah. show go online. Uh, and they're freely available on YouTube. And uh, I played, um, I've been curating the introductions. There's been an introducer before every uh, show. And yeah. um, Rob, the project lead, had been asking me if I'd like to play. And um, we thought about wanting to to put a spotlight on a, a play or a part that that people may not be that familiar with, and um, because I could bring, as Liam Neeson would say, a variety of skill sets to the table, and we ended up. Uh, I played Timon, and we, in his fall from philanthropy to misanthropy, uh, I used. I started with received pronunciation in my accent, and then moved to original pronunciation. Uh, in the second half and um, but yeah there's a middle bit where he uh, invites everybody is is flatterers to a banquet and um, everyone's expecting a fine meal and he ends up serving them lukewarm water and rocks and then hurls the rocks at them and he's really titus like in that moment yeah and if i remember correctly no one's children or no one's are included in that particular banquet but that's what you know the two t's uh time and titus and there's the banquet scene in both places that uh very memorable uh bad bad, bad time out um at your Absolutely. friend's place for a banquet no uh, pie special fortunately right right <laughs> Uh, so, uh, how many of these are available now? Are any uh, in this series? Yeah, all of them. Um, so, they are Coriolanus this week, and that means they've got five or six of the canon left. So, they're almost through. Yes, peeking through the uh, Shakespeare's inc incredibly epic and hardcore period where he does Anthony Cleopatra and Macbeth and Lear and Timon and Coriolanus and they're about to enter the the more fantastical period of his canon where he gets into Cymbeline and Pericles and Winter's Tale. Yeah. 
All right. So, what is this? So, people who, uh, my Japanese colleagues, can you、uh, say again where you go, where you would search on Google? So, you、uh, search for the show must go online. Ah, okay. And、um, it has, there's a YouTube channel、um, with a yellow background and a little fun picture of Shakespeare.、Okay. And every single play from Two Gentlemen of Verona through to The Tempest will be up there. Well, most of them are up there already, but、uh, by mid November, the, the project will be finished and 36 plays. Yeah. 36 uh, there was a, during the 70s, there was a group、uh, that in Shibuya, which is very close to where we are,、uh, where I am now, Tokyo, called the Jean Jean Theater. And、um, What was the guy's name?、Uh, Mr. Deguchi, who was the director. And I guess Jean Jean Jean, they just used、uh, t shirts and jeans and ran through the entire canon. And it bare, bare stage. And,、uh, and so, and it was very progressive stuff there. So, this is something that. Uh, the, that is、uh, close to the hearts of some of the older Japanese、uh, scholars of Shakespeare, actors, and so forth. The idea of a comprehensive run through the productions, not going into extremely exquisite,、uh, you know, well, you can't. You can't go into an exquisite production. You have to do it. So that's what you guys, the show must go online. I will make sure I, I will do a. A little introduction of you actually post、uh, talk, and I will make sure to have that very, very much featured. I'll send this talk out to all of our friends in the Shakespeare Society, and you're free to do that too, to send it to whomever you wish. I am doing this、uh, because I wanted to be able to invite you over and have a big thing maybe this year or next year, and we can't really set that up. And so I'm trying to, and I, ha- I got a grant, a little bit of grant money. So、uh, th- this, is, this is how I'm doing it.、We're, Perfect. Well,、uh, I have my fingers crossed to, to get over in autumn next year, if all being well, you know. But、uh, we should be okay here.、Mm-hmm. The, the big question is what will be brought in for Olympics and so forth. And so now、uh, you could come now. But it would be dicey. You would have to get a test before you left. You'd be stopped at the airport. And、uh, God forbid you, f- you test positive at the airport. But、uh, you, you'll have to wait there with jet lag. So you could get into Tokyo now,、um, I think. But、mm-hmm. it is a moving target.、Mm-hmm. And it's almost daily. I'll wait. I'll check. Check, check. I'll, uh, I'll yeah. And once you got here, there would be no, we would have to do this anyway. Once you got here, because we can't, I can't, you know, reserve a room and have you come in and do some、uh, acting. And you're going to do this next、uh, two weeks from now in my class.、Mm-hmm. And we have a nice little group already assembled. Oh, great. And I'm really happy that、uh, we have my students, we have some of my colleagues, and happily a couple of my colleagues in linguistics, but also people from、uh, other universities whom you know.、Uh, oh, and uh, uh, Amy Hamana and uh, uh, Marie uh, Honda and、uh, some other. Uh, names out there that、um, Igarashi san, I think he said he's coming. People you know, and I hope that、uh, what I'm going to try to do, and let's talk about this now. 
one phenomenon that everyone talks about in online teaching is when you go into recording, you really can't record your students' faces without their permissions. And it's, uh, so here, they're very strict about that. So I am doing my lectures to myself. I'm looking at myself doing lectures and yeah. not to an audience. And actors like you feed so much from the audience response and, and uh, there's that interaction. So what I'm going to try to do is to get s some of my students, uh, who I know are not uh, shy, to keep their faces on. Okay. And you can talk to them, although there'll probably be far more people watching you. But we won't be able to give all the faces, but we can give maybe five or six. Well, that's, that's And I'll, I'll get mine out of it. I'll let you look at some fresh, young, nice faces rather than my old surly self. Uh, but uh, you'll have that, but then the recording will probably just be you. We, we won't see. be able to to do that. And I will introduce you, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, we make mistakes doing these things. I mean, we're all learning. We're, really we're all learning. learning. We're all and learning. Every uh, every talk like that is an adventure in 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 a new land, you know, in working out how to, like we said earlier, how to teach, how to learn, how to listen, how to uh, uh, see if we can squeeze some some sort of atmosphere through this little black dot and uh, and uh, and reach out to, to people and make us all feel like we're in the same room together. It does happen, I think. It does happen. And some people are better at it than others. I've been looking at a lot of YouTube videos along with many other people around the world, and it's amazing. You have these just rank amateurs who can entertain you, you know, for yes. a short period of time, but they can very much entertain you. Absolutely. And then you get these pure professionals, you know, very big name guys on major networks who, who seem completely lost. Yeah. And also lost, and no, there's no help with production. Uh, they, they just seem to be talking from their uh, kitchen somewhere. And uh, now this brings up something I want to ask you about. You're doing, uh, you're doing kind of original rehearsal along with original pronunciation. Uh, you're looking at rehearsal practices in the Shakespearean period. And you've talked about that before, and I'm going to kind of ask you to talk about that some now, that I think that we're talking about similar stuff that there was probably more, mm, you had a little bit more room to make mistakes. Things happened quickly. If I remember what you said last time, you, you, you had to, you got your script, you got your foul papers or whatnot. You had to learn fast. The rehearsals were done and then you're on boom. And there had to be some goof ups in that kind of environment. What do you think? Well, you know, um, I think first off, I would say that no matter what show you're seeing, although perhaps I was about to say, no matter what show you're seeing, there are always goof-ups, but perhaps, you know, I've seen a good degree of Japanese theatre, and um, there's a, a, a precision in craft that I witness in Japan. Oh, that, yeah. That I think eliminates a great deal of possibility of goof-up. Um, uh, and what I, but what I was taught was that essentially goof-up is opportunity for play. Yeah. 
and that 99.9% of the audience wouldn't be able to recognize a goof up from a planned something or other. Um, and actors and practitioners and directors come out of a performance and crucify themselves mercilessly over some mistake that they feel is huge, but that audience is never aware of. So uh, you can rehearse for 12 weeks or 16 weeks or six weeks or, or whichever sort of major mainstream theater company you might be working with. And there will always be something. And in some respects, I as an audience member don't necessarily want to see something that is so perfect that there's no room for play, um, uh. that has been choreographed to within an inch of its life. And, and that has been the tendency with a lot of 20th and 21st century theatre, I think, mm -hmm. and musicals to this day. You know, if you step in as an understudy, you will learn the tracks of each character and you will learn the exact footfall and the exact gesture and the exact tone of voice and you will copy someone else's performance. And, I, you know, and, unless you're a, um, a, a name, a celebrity, you don't really get an opportunity to to put your mark on the part. Mm. At least I'm painting it quite starkly, uh, the, the, the lack of freedom here. But I only do that as an opportunity to serve as a point of comparison to what it was like 400 years ago, where mm. they Shakespeare's company would be putting on six different plays every week. They'd be performing them at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, to get the best light of the day because the theatres were outdoors. The shows were said to be um, two hours traffic of the stage. Mm -hmm. That's the quote from Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know that would mean at some point between hearing the second time the bell tolled at the Southern Cathedral nearby the Shakespeare's Globe mm -hmm. to the third time. So that would be between four o'clock in the afternoon and five o'clock in the mm -hmm. afternoon the show would finish. And then the actors would go to the tavern because things don't change mm -hmm. or they would go home and deal with family or business. And then they'd return to the theater the next morning and they would rehearse the dances and the fights for the play that day. Like I said, a new play every single day of the week. So they prepare the complicated bits and they would also start putting energy into a new play. So, because uh, if you're doing six different plays a week, it's not going to take long before you run out of material. Uh -huh. So they're not just keeping the play for the, the day, the afternoon coming, but they, uh, they need to prepare new material. Uh, so uh, there was a, a scholar who worked out that over the course of the two or three weeks before a new play would perform, there would be something like 18 hours to rehearse the play in. and that's that's oh, about an hour or two every morning for, for two or three weeks mm. and all you're really getting to do then is um the great thing is you don't have to work out what how to play the space you're not arriving to a new performance space the space is the shakespeare's globe the other great thing is you don't have to learn how the actors are going to work because you've been working with them all your life and and they play in a particular way, and there's a, a, a symbiosis, I suppose. There's a great playful relationship that you're developing. 
as you'll experience with any colleague that you've worked with for some time, there's a vocabulary, a shorthand that you learn. And it probably wouldn't take that long to learn the lines because your memory muscle is very strong because you're performing a different play every day of the week. Uh. So when you really think about it, if they know how to work the space and they know how to play with each other and they know how to use the lines, um, all they really need to know how to do for it to work a new play is establish what the fights are, if there are any, if it's a history play, do all the battles, if it's a tragedy, do the big fight at the end, rehearse the dances and the music, and then any complicated bits like um, when lots of people are speaking at the same time or a banquet has to appear and disappear like in The Tempest or, or lots of exits and entrances like the lobby scene in Macbeth. You might want to make sure that those where, where the drama reaches a sort of climax, you want to probably make sure those are smooth and, and to encourage smoothness, that might need a little bit of practice. Apart from that, you're encountering a theatrical situation where an incredible amount is unknown, a lot is unrehearsed, the actors would have a memory of hearing the play read out loud to them from their first introduction to it when the playwright would, would read the whole play and, and take on all the voices. And there'd be a, a piece of paper backstage uh, which would have all of the exits and entrances and the acts and scenes and where the fights are. And it, would be, it was called the plat, very similar to our word plot. Mm. Um, and, and beyond those handrails or that skeleton outline, the actors would jump on stage when the, the bell rang and they would be actively and keenly listening to each other, mainly because they wouldn't have heard what the other had to say before. And then you're watching a very dynamic, alive interaction, a whole couple of hours of playfulness, um, where the, the, you know, the movement around the stage isn't rehearsed either, so they're improvising their movement with each other. And as they're playing with each other, they're also playing with the audience who are reacting in a whole new sequence of unrehearsed ways. Mm. So you've got a real, a real symbiosis between the acting company and the space and the words, and then another one between that whole dynamic and the audience. And so when we've been trying to recreate or, uh, uh, you know, what little we know about the 400 year old rehearsal practices and, re and methodologies, when we create a show, we tend not to perform more than a couple of times. We, you know, we, we've never done six month runs or six week runs either because we forge the rehearsal process and the performance process as closely as possible to mm. what we understand the process was 400 years ago to see if we can create that same chemical reaction, which must have been a firework, a, a factory of fireworks mm. every afternoon. Did you, did you uh, achieve that in, at any point in your runs? We told that uh, there is something, you know, if, 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 you, if you align all these ingredients in the right way, you know, it's a little bit like tuning uh, an instrument, I suppose, to the right frequency or the right uh, pitch. And um, people have been very kind saying that it's, it's you know, it's Shakespeare like they've never seen before.
<sighs> which is really really lovely and and you know, and, and like we explored last year in japan there's a lot of synchronicity with the craft of kabuki where i believe they also have very little rehearsal time and mm. a lot of the kabuki practice has been exactly the same as it has been for 400 years so um, this idea of a group of people coming together that have patterns of process and of characters and just need to rehearse a few days to be able to put a new show together but i think that you know there's a vast difference because obviously our rehearsal process has changed over here but also we don't have the um the uh the lineage you know of of shukunin of of the craft being handed down from family to family to family over generations mm -hmm. which is sadly lost over here Oh, yeah, yeah. And well, you say sadly, but then sometimes you want things lost because the, <laughs> you know, and I think you said that kind of alluded to that because in the case of no drama, where Zayami wrote down precisely how to do every one of them, he, what a wonderful service to history and the history of no, but it just kills it. You know, it doesn't give you any, any room. And I was told by maybe you told me this or someone told me this that um, that his his the idea of him being philanthropic and generous by by establishing or by writing down by trying to capture it yeah. was misinterpreted as this is the way it must be done. Yeah, yeah. There's another famous example of that too. What is it? Um, I think it's what's Ovid's ours. Amatorium that was written as a satire in its time in classical Latin times. And during the Middle Ages, it was the art of love. It was taken and read as a serious guide, a manual to how to go about the art of romance. And so, uh, and, and I think Shakespeare has happily evaded that almost all the way through. You know, there have been times when it's sort of, you could argue maybe some of the, you know, the Vic, the proscenium stage of the Victorians and so forth that uh, maybe it was a little stayed. But, you know, everything I read about any history, any anything that's brought up even in the 19th century or certainly in the 18th century, there were lots of innovations and in the, the mm -hmm. actors and, you know, just the whole uh, lineage of actors who made it new and then it moved it went to america it went to germany it went everywhere uh, eventually Absolutely. and and you're going everywhere you came to japan last year when i was on leave we did and uh, and i didn't get to see you and i've heard just what i've heard wonderful things you know that you guys were at uh, sofia i think and where else did you play uh, other than oh, Sofia? Gosh, all over. We played up in um, Nagano. We played down um, in Yusuhara a few hours uh, up in the mountains away from Kochi. Yeah, yeah. Um, Euro, yeah. And uh, we played in Kyoto and Osaka. And, uh, yeah, a couple of different universities in um, in Tokyo too. It was... And, and and to a degree, we were zigzagging back and forth across the country a little bit. But um, there were, having visited in uh, 2017 and 2018, there were uh, 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 there was quite a hit list of places I wanted to share with the with the ensemble. And yes. we, we we had a an incredible time. It was it was really wonderful.
I'm sure you did. I'm sure you you did. You know that you were sort of an advanced uh, scout. You know, coming scouting out things before the other members of your ensemble uh, came. So you were already seasoned. And I think your father did some traveling in Japan. He is very uh, beloved here among my friends, particularly uh-huh. in linguistics, uh, and is I, I would just say you know adored. Uh, I've, uh, you know, that's you, really interesting to hear. Well, he's the reason that I, I think I fell in love with Japan. We visited in 1984. Um, so uh, obviously I was minus 20 years, let's say. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, at uh, least, at least. <laughs> I was seven years old um, and have and came away with the most incredible memories of the country. And... Uh, and missed an opportunity in 2000 when two of my best friends went backpacking around Japan and I decided I couldn't go because I was, I was busy writing um, the Shakespeare's words dictionary with dad. And, oh, yeah. um, but this, but Japan was calling to me for, for years and years and years. And then um, I left London in 2016, 2017 and uh, packed, all my stuff into a lockup unit and pretty much just traveled the world with work for for two years and and was very lucky and got to go back to japan and it was uh, i remember that first few days in 2017 the first time i'd returned and um i i, I can't quite you, you you'll resonate with this i'm sure there was a feeling of familiarity of, of almost uh, returning home which, huh feel very lucky to have experienced well the i don't know the crystal family and the there's you're talking about built things built into your dna there's something in the welsh character that is extraordinarily linguistic and Mm. it might it might be a sense of protecting a language you know a history of protecting a a language against an encroaching dominant language or from village to village or whatever but the, the there is a, a direct connection the, the the japanese love of their language and love of language itself at least among my peers and my um uh, colleagues uh, is very similar to what you can find throughout the uk but certainly certainly in the welsh uh experience and of course i was in Carmarthen. A few years ago, and I was at a, uh, with my wife, and whom you've met, and uh, she's Japanese, and there was no English that I could understand being spoken. It was Welsh, and uh, you know, of course, the waitress and so forth would, was nice enough to speak to us in English. There's a great pride of the language here, although it's a it's a quiet pride, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the Welsh can be quite um, reserved uh, about sharing their language sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so it can be quite. Um, I, I, well, I think that's true to most places. You hear someone speaking your language, and you make your best effort to switch away into their language. Yeah, but uh, I, uh, it's it's a beautiful one, and thank goodness that they managed to to save it. There was a huge campaign in the eighties to save the Welsh language, and they managed to establish the TV sh- channel, which speaks. Only in Welsh, it's called uh, S4C, S Pedwar Ek, in Welsh, and um, it's still going today. So they've uh, they're one of the language death success stories where they managed to pull it back from the brink. Yes, they did, and I remember the early in the early days uh, hearing 
there's some famous guy who uh, was being featured on BBC back then, and I'm a, a little bit older than you are, but I fully remember this guy talking about preserving the Welsh language and thinking at that time, I was actually in London doing re research in London, thinking at that time, very young, I was a student still in college, but the, this guy, I appreciate what he's doing, but it's not going to work, you know. It's just not going to work because you're you're uh, part of the UK now, and and the young people are not going to uh, speak the language. They're not going to learn. And I was wrong. I was mm -hmm. completely wrong. It came back, and it, it's there, and it's strong. Uh, but going back to the uh, relationship that you feel, uh, I've talked to blues singers from Mississippi who felt the same thing in Japan. They feel like they get here and they're at home for some reason uh and has i don't know what it has to do su southern mannerisms and uh, i i don't know what it what it is but i've heard this from other no, places in the world due to the most you know incredible and most gracious hospitality that that you that i have encountered everywhere i've gone at least anyway everybody yeah. has been so so kind and generous and welcoming and and um and I think also, you know, from a <laughs> the outsider's perspective, of course, but I don't know, there's something about the, the Japanese society and the culture, the, the thoughtfulness that's been put into the architecture, into the, into the, the water that runs through the, the, the you know, in, in little streams through the mountain towns and everything where there's, it's such a, there's a lot of peace to be gleaned from every, almost every moment you can be walking through the busiest of, busiest of cities and suddenly there's a a shrine yes <laughs> and um and there's a there's a lot of i, I know there's a there's there's the counter side to this too in the society but um i feel that there's more easy access to greater pools of well-being well, that's one of the sadnesses that I do have is that when people, when you come over, for instance, when we met and, and we, well, I'm, I'm in an area of town that I'm trying to find you that I'm, I'm not familiar with, but I'm seeing something new in the town I live in. Of course, Tokyo is huge. You could spend several lifetimes here and not see everything. And I've had friends come over and I said, well, let's go do something. And they take me somewhere that they've heard about. And it's, and I feel, oh, I feel like the tourist here, right? And so I'm, that's one thing I do miss with, because usually every year two or three people will come over and I can rediscover the town I live in because you get into your habits. I go from my place to work and back and da, da, da. Oh. And when someone comes in, like when you come in, I, we get to go to someplace new try out some new food. Uh, of course, get, you know, it, there's always something to do with the performing arts, all the joy. Mm -hmm. uh, and also having an uh, English-speaking actor and performing arts. I, there's, there are a lot of Shakespearean productions, a lot of Shakespearean activity. There's an enormous amount in Tokyo and throughout Japan and in the bigger cities, but a lot of it is in Japanese. And so it, uh, it's a little bit, it's not as attractive to me. I have a graduate student who actually has a personal bibliography of all of these performances in Japan. And I didn't realize this until recently. And I said, you know, you have a, tr that's a, a treasure trove there that's huge. to write up this 
uh, and she has uh, and you know, she's made PDFs of uh, uh, playbills and so forth. And she actually is an actor who performs in English. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not quite Macbeth in Japanese. Isn't quite the same, even though it's very interesting. Uh, for me, it isn't. And uh, the only Shakespeare in Japanese, well, outside of the you know the films, of course, um, uh, that I've seen has been Ninagawa San's company. Yeah, uh, Ninagawa Sensei. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, his uh, his company's work, and we've seen oh goodness, Macbeth and King Lear yeah. and Coriolanus. Uh, yeah, Mister Othello, um, and uh, it's. Uh, um, the most beautiful storytelling. It's, uh, well, I read one review of his Macbeth, and it said it's just achingly beautiful. Yes, that's exactly. It's the way it was described. And uh, what few pictures you can get, I could give uh, some examples, but there's this picture of Lady Macbeth with her, her fan, or, or Uchiwa, and it's there. And I did a presentation in Washington, and I explained to people, I said, that fan wherever it is, how many ever centimeters above her eyebrow that we see here, it's that way every time, every, every night. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a, uh, what, what he did. And of course, you know, the visual is so important. A few friends and colleagues have worked with him to have said that uh, you're left to your own devices in terms of what the lines might mean, but in the picture he would see it and choreograph as you say every movement down to the slightest centimeter and i've never encountered a practitioner where you could be sort of parachuted into any moment in the play or given a screenshot of any moment in the play and you'd immediately be able to tell which scene it was and what's going on or in perhaps if you couldn't tell the scene you'd immediately be able to tell what the relationship of the characters was to each other or to the audience. It's such incredibly clear storytelling. Yes. Yes. I do think, though, that at some point here in the fairly near future, there will be the ability. One of the things that's hard with uh, acting a full play is with the the Hollywood squares. It's that old American program where the celebrities uh, would try to answer questions and what is it the beginning of the brady bunch any americans would and it may have been imported over you know but uh and the old 70s shows where they'd have breakup screens sometimes you know they just had that technology so yes let's use it uh that that's hard but i don't think we're very far away from being able to test and do a theater production perhaps maybe with not with audiences but uh, I'm seeing this now in American programs. Comedians with shows on network television are having limited audiences, social distancing, mask, test before they enter, and they're, mm. they're able to do their, their shows. Uh, act, and also sports. Acting is a, you know, how do you do, I don't know, a sword fight, socially distant, you know, that that messes up the point of a sword fight. It's supposed to be dangerous and close. Um, well, you know, I think there's there's all sorts of different... I mean, we're talking about bubbling together as a company at some point so we can create something in, without that fear. There's still then the ramifications of interacting with the audience. 
um, or at least, you know, uh, building an environment that the audiences feel safe in, and whether that's outside or whether it's inside with great air conditioning or whatever it is. But, um, but we have had a tendency in the last hundred years or so to get ever closer as actors and to be touching each other. I, I saw a production of Henry V a few years ago where everyone hugged Henry. And as soon as you, as soon as you have that kind of close physicality, you're removing a lot of power, a lot of authority, a lot of status from, from each other. Mm. So there will be some naturally positive repercussions to come out of this social distancing as well, because we, we, there's an awful lot that can be done and made even more meaningful from that distance rather than oh, you know, bringing we, back distance, making yeah, distance fashionable again. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We feel that coming together makes things intimate, but often it can, you know, two actors coming together and being this close to each other can feel very powerful for them but it can often be quite excluding for an audience. You know, I think you're right. And for years, I'm going to tell you a secret. Don't tell anyone. I, I, was, I was brought up uh, Protestant, Presbyterian, and my friends make fun of me because I'm not a good hugger. I'm just not, and the, I, we, I, I made friends with these guys in college, and we have reunions. And it's a close group, maybe 12 to 14 guys. We Every three years or so, we'll have. And everybody starts hugging. And I don't like to hug. I just don't like to. I just, I just feel, you know. And I don't really like shaking hands. Okay. Uh, before this, I used to carry, uh, what is it called? The, uh, you know, um, Purell. That's the word I'm looking for. Something different in Japanese. But I used to carry that in my car. And I used to use it after I shook hands. Uh, with people because I've been in Japan so long that shaking hands uh, was something, and, you know, you get these people who would wipe their noses and then hold out their hands. And I'm going, my goodness, it's a Petri dish. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm okay with uh, a little less. Con I like contact in the right, you know, I'm very happily married and so forth. I don't feel that I'm a cold person, but I, I think that it, there has been a social movement it's a little bit ungraceful towards too much of this. Uh, it's disingenuous at some point. You know, you, you you hug people you're really really happy to see and mm. feel a certain type of closeness with. That uh, uh, I just. Uh, you think I, that the become too commonplace? I think it has. I never shook hands with my father growing up. And he would have found it to be a little bit strange in the culture we were in. Mm. Uh, I think the word is disingenuous. Like, mm. why do we need to shake hands? Just come in and sit down. Have something to eat. You know, mm. this is your home. Uh, your, you know. It brings a degree of formality rather than informality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm your father, not your boss. Or, you know, a guy you're interviewing with or whatnot. And I think later on when I went to college, I remember going to college and everybody was shaking hands, shaking hands. And I think I, I started shaking hands with my father after that. But he, I think he took it a little bit. Uh, okay, okay, we'll do this. But Well, you know that, uh, I'm sure you know that uh, when you hug or when you touch someone, there's a degree of oxytocin that's released, a sort of pleasure. Um, well, it's not dopamine, but it's uh, there's a... You get it from, from petting dogs and cats as well. There's a, a relaxation chemical that activates in your brain and um, all of the lack of physicality 
uh, has certainly been negatively affecting a lot of colleagues because, of course, I come from an industry that is very, very tactile. And, oh, um, yes. wonder about what the buildup of that oxytocin that isn't being released in our civilization at the moment and that lack of physicality. And there will be some some negative repercussions from that, mental health-wise at the very least. But, but oh, yeah. There years. already have been, Ben, and uh, and having having a uh, dist hugging, I I really miss the old pat on the back, and I do <laughs> miss I do miss some handshakes, you know, someone you haven't seen, you know, uh, uh, you know, hail and well met, the pub sitting around because even if you're mm. even if you're not touching and hugging and kissing or whatnot, you're still with people. There's that human energy that's there that you can feel. Oh, do we miss it? Do we miss it? Uh, you can you can do a little bit of that in Japan now, but it's uh, it's not a cafe culture like you, in, in Spain in Barcelona. On my uh, when I was on academic leave, leave last year, we were in Barcelona for four months, and oh, they're wow. holding up. Of course, they've had some spikes, but they're holding up fairly well because they're set up to be outside. Mm. Whereas in Wales during the winter, you can't do that. You can't no. do that. Maybe during the summer, but <laughs> it's still it's a little bit icy, you know. Yeah, summers are very similar to our winters uh, a lot of the time. Uh, it's certainly not an outdoor uh, culture uh, so much. Yeah, cafe culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have a certain. It has to be a certain temperature, and yeah, conditions have to be sort of right for that. Yeah. Uh, and the pub is uh, so important to, and, and the bar, uh, and, and of course, I, I think there's a, the, the whole situation has brought a lot of people up into their heads a lot. There's so much second and third and fourth level of, of logistical thinking with every single thing, with every single interaction. And, um, and you know, coming back to, to the theater, um, that's not a place you want anyone to be in. Oh, want the audience to be in their heads. Like theater bosses over here, I'm sure in Japan too, are, uh, are, are part of the reason the theaters are closed is because anything up to 96% of their revenue comes from ticket sales. Yes. Now, if you socially distance your audience and strip two thirds of the audience away to make sure everyone has is, 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 is got distance around them, then there's no way of making that financial uh, performance financially viable. They just can't right. bring in enough money from tickets. They need some sort of subsidy. And for the theatres that don't have subsidy, they're between a rock and a hard place. Now, you, you, for the theatres that are bringing in audience and are able to, and everyone's at distance and wearing masks, you know, you've got... People cough in theatres. That's just one of the things that humans do when they're feeling a little awkward or feeling tired or they're feeling emotionally piqued by what they're watching. It's an, it could be a nervous reaction. And, but what we want more than anything, standing on stage or standing behind the stage, is to take audiences out of here and have them live in here for a couple of hours. Right. And they're sitting... You know, an audience is a very different thing from a group of people sitting separately from each other. An audience is a very different thing from a crowd and from a mob as well. It really does depend on how much that group of individuals 
morphs together the, into a hom uh, homogenous unit. And then depending on how you provoke them, they will either become a crowd or a mob or hopefully a nice, lovely audience. And it's much easier to laugh when people around you are laughing. And it's much easier to cry when people around you are crying too. And if people are quite distant from you and you're wearing a mask, so you're obviously concerned about your health in some way, and then you hear someone cough, it's going to be hard to, to, to keep everyone in the bubble of the play and, and help sus them suspend their disbelief and, and encourage them to be entertained for a while. And even if they are entertained, the, the, the other key factor that's missing really is congregation. You know, they're not a congregate. They haven't congregated. They're in the same space, but they're quite far away from each other. There's so much that's bringing people up here in these day-to-day -day interactions. Do I hug you? Have you washed your hands? Can I touch you? Are we in a bubble? To how can we eat together? Do I have to move my mask? To how can we we come together and, as it were, sit by the fire, sit around the fire, and, and just hear stories again? I mean, it's it's incredible how much how pervasive this this pandemic has has seeped into every corner of thought and made us um, yeah made us live up here a lot more. Uh, yeah, and I don't know what what is it two years in the 1590s when the plague came through and the theaters were closed. I think it was roughly two years. I uh, could be wrong, and I need to look that up. Uh, but it was a solid period. Now, two years doesn't look long to us looking back, does it? But can you imagine all of those actors living through that? I think that's when Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucretia were published yeah. and that and uh, written. And I think. So you know, you're you're doing some writing now, right? You're you're going yeah. going into your head and doing some writing now, taking uh, advantage of the situation to you know turning it into ESO. And Shakespeare had the opportunity to. Uh, I mean, he turned that very, like you say, about looking more positively at things. The theatres were shut. A, a quarter of London's population, or a third of London's population, was decimated by the plague. Um, a lot bodies in the street we, you know, we haven't street. gotten there yet right um and um most if you could you ever you know you left the city uh we're pretty sure that the players uh, went on tour if they went on tour they were either going to noble homes or or more likely the courtyards of inns so they were outside and able to to to, to carry on playing some of their repertoire but but what shakespeare seems to have done is uh, wrote a good, good, good swathe of his sonnet collection. Uh, and as you say, some of the longer narrative poems like uh, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucrece, a couple of, we think, a couple of plays that have a feeling of, of not being quite finished or of being a bit more country than city, like Love's Labour's Lost. And, ah, uh, maybe I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes sense too. So a little unfinished. Yeah. When he comes back to the city, when the theatre opens again, and you get Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Midsummer's Dream, and Richard II, and he oh. comes back swinging hard. Yes, yes. Really wonderful. So, yeah, I've been writing, too. I've been, um, you know, what choice do we have, right? Yeah. It's either sit here and be glum, or let necessity be the mother of invention. So yeah. I've, been, I've been acting, I've been producing, I've uh, been writing, I've been creating as much as I possibly can just to 
I mean, I, I, I hope, I like to think Shakespeare felt the same way. There's, when it burns within you, you don't really feel like you have a choice. And, um, and the more constriction or restriction that can be put in place in the, in the creative and artistic community, uh, there's two ways to fall. Do you, does, it, do you, does that make you stop or does that make you become more innovative and inventive? And it certainly seems the restriction made Shakespeare more inventive. Um, but I don't doubt equally there were moments and times when he laid down the quill and thought, how can I, how can I do this? Well, you know, the, it's a Python joke about the guy being thrown into the death cart because I'm not dead, mate. You know, <laughs> I'm not dead yet. You will be soon enough. But you I'm know, feeling better. I'm feeling better. That's right. No, you're but, not. It was, uh, this was, you know, the black, the, uh, the black death was so, so horrible. And, and I, uh, it, of course, in those plays, of course, Romeo and Juliet, you could almost call it in certain areas, just an echo of that era uh, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the crypt and the scenes and the, you know, Sorry. the imagery of uh, that play. It's very referential to that. And, of course, the letter doesn't get to Romeo because the lower friar is locked into that. It's in, you know, a year ago, I said this in another one of these uh, conversations, but a year ago that seemed like a contrived, stupid ending, uh, the, you know, the actual ending of Romeo and Juliet, and it doesn't anymore. You know, they, they, they did this. You know, you, things get extreme in times of plague. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and it's it's lovely to think, or it's interesting to think that he brought the audience back with with such a funny and heartbreaking tragedy. You know that he really, you know, he welcomed them back and and let them blub. You know, he let them have that cathartic release, which must yeah. have been incredibly. Well, I don't know. Um, it must have been wonderful. Necessary. Yeah, things really getting back to normal and people feeling comfortable enough going to the theater, you know, not risking their life. It can happen. It can happen again. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, I think, was part of that it revival. Was. Absolutely. And what a, you know, in what a play. Oh. Just right. Uh, what a play! A real, um, a real joyful, fun celebration of life. But again, you know, like that, there aren't, there isn't a light play that Shakespeare wrote that doesn't start with some degree of of, of darkness. You know, where even Comedy of Errors begins with the th the, the the threat of execution on the twins' oh, yeah. father's yeah. life. And uh, Midsummer Night's Dream starts with Hermia being yeah. threatened with death or a nunnery or having to marry a man she doesn't love. There's, there's always some, you know, negative springboard to push you even further into the comedy or, or vice versa with Shakespeare. He, he very well knew the balance of the two theater masks that, that comedy doesn't live without tragedy and those two happy, sad faces next to each other. They need to persist together. Otherwise you're creating a, a piece of entertainment that, is imbalanced. No one wants to go and just laugh, and well, they think they might do, but actually, you know, the old theatre trick uh, is: if you want to make them laugh, make them cry first, and they'll laugh all the harder. And yeah. indeed, if you want to really cry, make them laugh first and relax them, and and then they'll 
they'll open up that heart center and be more ready to to emotionally connect yeah and I think I talked with uh, one of the uh, people about this, but there is some there in Midsummer, which I always hear described as a middle school play in the states, and uh, it's considered very accessible. I'm teaching in in Japan, and I don't find it necessarily that accessible. It's it's a very difficult play in in, in many areas, and also it's not. Uh, it's not child's play. Those lovers in the forest, uh, well, we have Theseus and Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, and just finished a war. And, you know, but by the grace of whatever, she manages to live, but she's a warrior queen. And you have these lovers insulting each other and threatening to kill each other. And it's just very edgy, dodgy stuff to do. Uh, in the lines, you know, not just. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the idea that mortals are the playthings of these fantastical and slightly insidious fairy creatures. It's, um, yeah. Uh, it, 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 I, I like to think that uh, some of those stories that Shakespeare grew up with in, in the countryside in Stratford on Avon, you know, that uh, you would grow up with uh, an understanding of herbs and flowers and, um, and also of, of lore and fairy and myth and mythology. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I think though that those those people probably, of course, you know, um, I know a little something about the city of London during that time. You know, if you wanted to go up to the office of the Revels, you had to walk through Smithfield where they slaughtered cattle, mm -hmm. and uh, and of course you are pretty much an expert on the whole area of the Paul's Cross Churchyard in the middle of London, that big public area. Which and you did one of Dunn's sermons uh, mm -hmm. for John in old pronunciation, and of course there, people, the audience is in there. It's a graveyard, it's a churchyard. There's death is close by, mm -hmm. and uh, so you you have people who are living close to every element of nature, the death, the slaughtering of animals, but also the flowers. Or yeah. close by to, and the streams and the running brooks and and all the um, you know all of the uh, the booksellers would be set up outside the old cathedral there. So there was there was learning and and inspiration and idea and innovation being being sold around the same places. Yeah, it was their their internet, except mm -hmm. you had to go yeah. to it. You know. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I like that. Yeah, well, there was, a, you know, the the quid, the the fact that done. I'm convinced, uh, having listened to your, uh, and really brought that. Uh, you know, sermons aren't the thing you go to in this period. It's much easier to go to a Shakespeare play or another playwright uh, in a contemporary, not to a sermon. And even guys who study sermons are hard on sermons. But the way you you bring that to life. And you realize that Dunn relies on his audience, which is a general audience. It's not just aristocrats or well-educated Cambridge, Oxford. He's relying on his audience to have a certain understanding and knowledge to, of, the, of the text, the biblical, the religious text. And those, that's where they got it, right around where he's speaking in those bookshops. So that, well, you know, like uh, we were talking earlier about the freedom of, of play that the actors had but uh, from what we know about john dunn's preparations for his 
one to sometimes two hour long sermons. The, the sermons indoors were often an hour long. The sermons out, outside the St. Paul's Cathedral were, were two hours long. And he would improvise the whole thing, and it would be full of allegory and, and uh, all sorts of biblical allusions and incredibly well-crafted. And, um, and then he would write up the sermon afterwards, and uh, he would be you know, dot for dot. An incredible, uh, incredibly eloquent and articulate speaker, from what we understand. It was very interesting uh, recording those sermons because for a while I found myself fighting the punctuation um, to read his, his, because it's punctuated by him as well, we understand. And it was hard to understand, to, to follow the parsing, the way that he would use the punctuation to, to break up his lines huh. until I realized it was very much diacritic, that he was using the commas to help, to help the rhythm and delivery of the, uh, of the sermon to facilitate the size of the space that he was speaking in. So uh, if I would, uh, if, if the line was, Lord, have mercy and, and, and grant our father or whatever, it would say, and Lord, comma, have mercy, comma, and grant, comma, our father, or whatever. And you think that's so broken up, but as soon as you start projecting like you're in a huge, huge outdoor space, and Lord, have mercy, and grant our, fa our father, and you realize that he's letting the voice carry mm. and annotating his uh, speech afterwards for that sort of delivery. It's incredible. Really is. Now, what do you have in store for our students and our uh, audience uh, in a couple of weeks? Do you have any ideas or do you, do you want me to send you a menu or? Well, the menu. Uh, uh, as I'm, I want you to feel free. Oh, well, that's very kind. The ensemble that I curate that uh, toured Japan in 2018, we were due to uh, come together in Wales in the mountains in March. And we were going to rehearse together for two weeks, and then we had two shows planned in in April in America. Uh, now, of course, none of that happened. And some people had booked their flights from India or from America, and some people had actually arrived in the country and couldn't leave the airport and had to get straight back on a flight home. Um, and we had a meeting on Zoom and started to talk about whether we could collaborate at distance, whether we were able to continue to work from all around the world. Because there are ensemble members in America and Canada and India and Japan and all over Europe. And coming together and doing anything requires a huge amount of time and a huge amount of money and also an effect on the climate, which is very much on our minds too. So we started to regularly meet and talk about how we might collaborate at distance. We had distance collaboration meetings for quite a few weeks. And out of those meetings came a, uh, a project we called What You Will. And it's a digital theatrical promenade around the world. And um, I think we're going to spend some time talking about that. Okay. And I, and I have spent some time looking at What You Will. I oh, find great. It, yes, uh, the uh, the spaces created 
in uh, in that. And I can't wait to hear your uh, explanation of that and what the goals are and, and uh, what, of course, inspired it and so forth. And, of course, this is great because you can talk about it and then uh, people who can go to it and, see, and you can get some feedback from them. Uh, and that's great. Now, tell me, I know you, you have to get off and do some recording, but I am curious, what is your day like today? What are you doing today? After, I, it's morning uh, for you, evening for me. I'm probably getting yeah. darker as we speak. You know, the sun has gone down. But what is your day like, uh, your coming day? Get lighter here. So as, as the day fades from you, it arrives here. It's a very blustery, we would call it a blustery day in Wales. The uh, the wind is blowing, the leaves are falling. Uh, it's quite gray, but it doesn't look like there'll be any rain. So um, I will take my dog uh, out for a walk a few times. And in between those walks, I'm going to be filming uh, from home, of course, uh, but I a commentary. Uh, sort of imagine it like a DVD commentary. So uh, there's a company that's filmed a number of theatre productions of Shakespeare, and we're going to select some scenes from those different productions of the same play and put them together and invite stu students to compare and contrast uh, the productions because uh, you know very few students have seen a Shakespeare play. Some definitely haven't seen two or three productions of the same play. Mm -hmm. And there are some students that have never been to the theatre before either. So this is an opportunity for them from home to get to see a little um, theatrical tasting session, I suppose. And uh, I'm going to be their, their guide on that. So that's my day. going to get to explore some Shakespeare with some young students. So it's a perfect autumn day. Well, that is great. That's fabulous. Well, I'll let you. I think that you're starting up probably in about 30 minutes, so I'm going to give you a chance to rest. You have been so gracious to uh, uh, to afford us this uh, this time. And also, in two weeks, uh, you're going to afford us more time. And we're delighted. Everyone's delighted and can't wait to see you. I was uh, giddy today. I had to go see the, uh, the doctor today for a checkup, and I'm fine. Oh, which is yeah. great uh if it's just standard checkup and uh, and so after that i wanted to um uh, yeah i wanted to do something bad like drink to celebrate you know you celebrate your good health by doing something unhealthy i said nope i have to be perfectly sober and capable uh with ben here and so um, one of the first times that we'll have talked together that i won't be able to go out for a beer with you afterwards so yeah yeah um, yeah that's that that's we're able, I'm able to continue the relationship with Ayo Medakuin as well. It's nice to, to have a continuum here. Oh, yes. And, uh, and we have a new colleague who is, uh, did his work at uh, University College London, his uh, graduate work in linguistics, who, who was very quick to sign up for this uh, event. And uh, I'll make sure that you are in contact with him because your, your buddy Tom's getting on a little bit. I'm closing in on retirement in a few years, not yet. But wow. yeah, how about that? Gosh. And, um, and oh, I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to enjoy living um, in your backyard in a tent. Uh, you, you're welcome. <laughs> will you, you return? If my wife kicks me out of the uh, house or whatever, I'll just come over to your place. Always. Will you retire to Barcelona or will you stay in Japan? Uh, we're going to probably be half and half. Probably a lot in Lovely. Spain. A lot in Spain. Yeah. That's a nice mix. Yeah, I need to really work on my Spanish though. 
But you know, it's, a, uh, it's, it's like we were talking about Wales. Just because you have Castilian Spanish doesn't mean that you're there with it because oh, no. the, the Catalan uh, language has come back and it's dominant in that area. And of course, the area is full of multilingual uh, areas. So, yeah, we'll be there. And that's where you'll come see me uh, if you want I to see me. I will be in your backyard. Yeah, be you'll be in my, yeah. So, might even, yeah. So, great. Great. Would you please give my best to your mother and your father? It was a joy to meet them and, uh, and also to all of you and yours. And I'll look forward to seeing you again, probably under a little more formal circumstances in a couple of weeks, Ben. I'll look forward to that. My best to your wife and to your colleagues there, too. Okay. Well, have a, have a great day, and we'll see you uh, when we see you again. Thank you.